Our Idle Hands, Season 1, Episode 2, hosted by Severely Maim. Watching lace be handmade often inspires the sentiment, that must be witchcraft by onlookers in awe of the complex-looking art. In this episode of Our Idle Hands, I have on my good friend and sister witch, Elena Kanegi Laux. Here to tell us about herself and how lace making is actually witchcraft. Just as in episode one, this podcast episode is dedicated to the late Joe Netherward, but it's also dedicated to the women whose backs the lace industry relied on to carry their art form into modern day. Elena Kanegilaux is a descendant of the Amish and grew up between the U.S. and Japan, where she was immersed in both traditional Mennonite craft and the DIY fashion scene in Tokyo's Harajuku neighborhood. After receiving her BFA in textile fashion from FIT, she won a grant which funded a four-month trip to study lace-making across Europe in 2015. Upon returning to NYC, she co-founded the Brooklyn Lace Guild, an organization dedicated to the preservation of lace-making and began teaching bobbin lace classes at the Textile Arts Center. In 2018, she completed her Master's in Costume Studies at NYU, where she based her thesis on interviews with lace makers that she conducted on her European travels. Currently, she is the collection specialist at the Antonio Ratti Textile Center at the Museum of Modern Art. Welcome, Elena. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very lucky that you are my first guest because you are you know, TikTok famous. You're a very busy woman. You're always, <laughs> always working on something. So I'm happy I could pin you down and make you come talk about two of hopefully your favorite topics, witchcraft and lace making. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as the podcast is called, you know, I can't have idle hands. I have to stay busy. I I think that's a problem with maker people is like, do we ever get a chance to rest? No. Would we have it any other way? No. Resting I, gives me anxiety. I need to be doing something at all times. Hands, same. brain. That's the only way that I can actually be still. <laughs> yes. Literally. I like can't wait to do like a knitting episode in the future where I f- like have some time to invest in like turning knitting into like a static trance inducing like which times because I can actually shut my like body and brain off kind of at the same time if I'm knitting something like that might I don't have to think a ton about yeah I have I always have some sort of project going and now with the podcast I've found a new way to fill time I'm sitting down is like I sit down and I like type away what I want like to talk to people about um on here which I guess uh brings me I'm looking at my my like little sheet of what all of my questions and everything. Um, so I figure we can just get right into it. Uh, I Excellent. gave everyone an intro for you. Let's start with the the witch, the witch of it all. Um, how <laughs> long have you considered yourself to be a witch? Oh, that's a complicated question, actually, because I feel like it's something that I was drawn to very early. I was raised religious, very Christian. And so um, I never quite fit in that world. And I knew intrinsically that that was like, not really for me. And I didn't, and I asked a lot of questions that got me in trouble, um, and didn't just sort of accept what I was told. So I would say, 
it was really like media and popular culture that introduced like the idea of witchcraft as an alternative to Christianity and mainstream religion to me. So probably like seeing the craft in theaters, um, giving my age away here. <laughs> at like when I was like 11 or something like that that was super transformative for me and I definitely had like a Ouija board birthday party and did light as a feather stiff as a board for like my 12th birthday um, and wanted to be Nancy like with every fiber of my being but I it's something that I've sort of moved in and out of throughout my life and I'm in a place now decades later where I feel like I'm ready again and have been feeling more interested in like diving into animistic and like alternative traditions but so I use which I but I sort of it's it's a difficult label like I don't know if I would call myself that in a way that makes sense I, I understand that and I've known you for a long time and I can't deny that uh to me you are you are a witch especially in like how you can pick up skill and things like that like it's it's it feels otherworldly um it is not uh, that of an average person, in my opinion. And I just kind of uh, think you live very magically um, in certain ways. But I get like, it feels strange to call yourself a witch when you're not in like active practice sometimes. And I kind of talked about that on like my intro episode of like, I had to take all of these years off of practicing witchcraft because I was like a super alcoholic. So I like wasn't doing, uh, but like in that time frame, I was like still calling myself a witch, but I was also like fully stepped back. And with how busy you keep yourself in the fiber arts world, I'm like, I don't, I don't have any surprise that you don't particularly have time to also be juggling like, you know, spirit pacts and you know, things like that every day. I've always known you as a fiber artist because I rem like some of the first times I remember hanging out with you was like we hung out at your apartment and we like just did like sewing projects to like go out that night. So like where did your Classic. love of fiber arts begin? Oh, gosh. Actually, again, taking me back to organized religion here. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but the one thing that I did take away from going to church as a child was um, because I was so fidgety and got in trouble a lot. I was given um, embroidery to keep my idle hands still. Um, this actually happened specifically after an in incident that I think you'll enjoy, which is where we were, they kept, I, in my memory, they kept all the kids on the balcony with their family so that we would be like less disruptive in our church, and um, which was in Pennsylvania, it was a Mennonite church. And I remember being given like um, peppermint candy that I was sucking on and not paying attention to whatever fire and brimstone stuff was happening and leaning over the balcony. And I accidentally dropped the peppermint candy out of my mouth onto an elderly woman's permed hair um, sitting beneath me, which I felt so bad about. <laughs> I was like so embarrassed and horrified. It was truly not on purpose, but they were like, okay, okay. So my grandma, um, my dad's mom gave me, um, this little teddy bear, like pre-drawn, like pre-printed kind of like embroidery design that I still haven't finished, which is like, honestly, <laughs> symbolic of my entire life. I still have it and it's still not finished like 30 years later. So maybe someday I'll finish it. Maybe that's 
when I'll like break the spell of my own procrastination. Yeah, I maybe that need was, to think about that. But um, that was but your that initiation. Was, and you just that was my initiation. No, totally. But I did then really enjoy it and start diving into other things. And my mom taught me to crochet and sew my own clothes. And then I studied fiber in fiber arts in school and university. So it sort of just took over my life slowly but surely. It makes sense. Like I think all of us that are makers, it starts as kids. Like I think either a solution to keep our hands busy by our parents or like by ourselves needing to be like, I need to make everything my own. I need to be able to alter this and do X with it and make it cooler. And now your focus is obviously on lace. I think everyone knows you as a lace witch. Uh, your TikToks have been, you know, gaining gaining notable numbers since you kind of put your first one up over there. Now, I would say that you're a driving force in the modern lace resurgence. But like, when did you start to fall in love with lace? That's so that's so hard to sort of pinpoint. But I definitely can look back to school projects that I did, like when I went to Concordia University in Montreal, and I was in the fibers program. And I did this whole installation of doilies. I like took I had inherited doilies from my grandma and my mom had taught me to crochet. So I had crocheted my own and I also collected them from thrift stores. And like, it became this whole installation. I filled a room with them. And, you know, I don't, unfortunately this is like pre cell phone cameras or even like having a digital camera. So there's no documentation of this, but, um, but I remember my art teacher just like really hated it. She thought it was so, <laughs> she was, she was like so offended that I would like do this like domestic craft and she really wanted it to be a, like critical of lace and doilies and this sort of domestic useless item, quote unquote. But um, I was like, no, I'm actually, I celebrate this. Like I'm really obsessed with this. And I'm glad that the art world is beginning to, at least in the textile world and the fiber art world change that perspective because now that, I've been working in bobbin lace more specifically for like 10 years. It's people are so mesmerized by it and they are starting to really see and appreciate this as unique art form. So um, I definitely think younger generations like on social media have a much more open mind and less baggage than like my art teacher did who grew up seeing her mom and grandma crochet doilies and, and just couldn't break outside her mind that this was something that could be an art form or that could be beautiful but younger people are like that's cool and weird what's that so that's why I think it really resonates with people and I really enjoy sharing it and I have also experienced as many of us had a lot of like gatekeeping in the art world and so I I put it out there all, all for free and just for the pure joy of like inspiring more people so everything that I learn I I'm eager to share and that's so important I think that like the occult world is very much the same. There's a ton of, there's like some gatekeeping that makes sense. Like, of course, you yeah. can't tell everything that you're doing to everyone in the occult world, but also people just trying to be like, no, you're not experienced enough to know this. I'm like, you probably like, like you probably just read it in a book. That, like anybody a book that anyone can find and read um and i understand like all the arts worlds can be like that like if you don't have x you are not considered enough to take part in whatever it is like you know seminars or whatever which i guess to a degree is nice because at least it's showing like that there is some respect for the art form but 
also like it's so tired there's room for everyone and you know now that you're saying this i'm i'm thinking about how much lace guilds which is primarily the system through which lace today um is transmitted and shared um they're hobbyist guilds not professional guilds today but they but it's you know i have a lace guild brooklyn lace guild that i founded in 2016 and like we're basically a coven i mean we you know we we hang out we make lace together we talk about everything we um help each other we teach each other we learn from each other and and you know as much as yes you can like find a book and like read the same thing some of these resources same with in rich witchcraft are like very obscure and hard to pin down it's also really hard to like tease out what is good information and what is like maybe less good information mm -hmm. so to have that sort of community guidance um is crucial and and lace is so community focused the same way that witchcraft is i think that that is really important yeah i didn't even think of like lace guilds in that same way especially because i didn't realize that that's kind of the more common like lace community is like in actual guilds that people are a part of i of course knew about the brooklyn lace guild uh because it's been very cool to watch you at the forefront of bringing lace to young people i i know that sounds crazy because you've been studying lace i feel like as long as i've known you because right after your wedding is when you went to europe for the like first time specifically just to study lace right that was um it was the second time actually oh because, that was the second yeah so i had gone in 2012 i self-funded a trip i was so desperate and eager I had it was around 2011 that I became like obsessed with the idea of learning to make lace and I think that that stemmed from I went to Tokyo with my husband Brooke then boyfriend um in 2010 I went to junior high and high school there so I went back to visit my uncle and some friends and just I hadn't been there in a long time and so and he had never been so we went together and I think I think it was on that trip that we ran across a little lace show in Shinjuku on like Omotesando or something like that no Shibuya sorry that blew my mind because it was antique handmade lace which Japanese the Japanese really loved like there are several little lace museums in Japan actually to this day um which is cool and people that make it and teach it from Japan that are incredibly talented but it sort of was the moment that it dawned on me that like people used to make it by hand. And I witnessed people having that moment when they see me demonstrating all the time. And it's such a joy to like have to experience that. But that was my moment of being like, oh my God, people made this. And then as soon as I realized that I was like, I must make it. Yeah. I have to do this. And so it was 2012 that I, that I went to Slovenia um, for their summer lace festival in June in Idria, which is a very small village um, in the mountains. It's beautiful. And I went and I like, it's, it's small enough that like, it made, it really like caused sort of made waves that like this random woman from New York showed up. So like I met the mayor and they like interviewed me on the radio and it was like this whole big deal that I showed up. And, and then I, I went to Venice also to look for needle lace. That's where it originated, but they have sort of at the time, at least they had like less of people actually making it other than a few ladies in Burano Island, north of Venice. They have a museum, but they didn't have a school or any classes at the time. Um, so I didn't learn it until I went back in 2015 and got private lessons. 
But yeah, it was that trip that made me go like, oh my God, I have to go back and like save lace making. And I was sort of naive in this way that I thought like I was going to swoop in like a hero and like, you know, whatever. But actually, I would say that I have really tried and succeeded in bringing a lot more visibility to this. But I'm certainly not the only person who has been working diligently to, you know, save lace making. And, And also, it really wasn't lost like there are so many young people making it we estimate there's probably 200,000 lace makers in the world and there's more all the time um we our classes are like packed we can't keep up um there's not enough teachers for how many students in the US at least so yeah it's it's really it's very exciting but that that was yeah that trip was super transformative for me and that was when i knew like oh this is for me and i'm never going to do anything else again for the rest <laughs> of my life yeah that is i of course um like you said there's a lot of other people in the modern lace revival uh but you've said it in interviews over and over that lace you know hasn't been going away it's just not had great pr and i think that you are the great pr to like help this resurgence really flourish and hopefully get a bunch of people from all over really uh learning and investing their time in it i this isn't one of our scheduled uh, interview questions, but is there any lace that's specific to Japan? That's a really good question. You know, lace is really strange in this way that, um, so I broadly study textile history and and specialize in a number of different things. Lace is just my primary focus, but um, textiles all over the world throughout history, you see the same techniques spring up in totally different times and places. Like people there's only so many things that you can do with threads, although mm-hmm. there are like thousands of things. <laughs> but so people figured them out in different parts of the world. So, you know, particularly um, ancient Peru in the Andes is known for making all kinds of incredible textiles like knits. And they were also knitting in Egypt by the 12th century and earlier were doing nail binding and precursor to knitting and things like that. So and those had no connection to each other. So but lace is sort of this weird thing where at least needle and bobbin lace really almost only you find in Europe. And there sort of isn't really an equivalent that you see in other parts of the world. It's kind of unusual. There's like one known piece of indigenous lace from Oklahoma, from the Spiro Mounds, that was an archaeological find that is essentially a bobbin lace structure. But it's the only piece and very little is known about it. But in East Asia, the only related technique to that is indigenous that is related to lace making would be this like Chinese needle, needle looping technique that is sort of also mysteriously not well known that does predate European needle lace. And it's used in embroidery, but it's the same buttonhole stitch um, open work technique used in lace, but they put gold foil under it. So it's like incredible. It's like so luxurious. It's stunning. But in Japan, they did have um, lace making there in the 19th century after like industrial manufacturing was introduced there's a lot of colonial and missionary philanthropic lace organizations that showed up around the world to like quote christianize and civilize unfortunately um women of color around the world and there there were some lace schools in japan so there was a the one that i'm familiar with is an irish crochet lace school in yokohama and they, this became established enough that they were selling Irish crocheted lace out of Yokohama for like 
until the 30s or something. But that's the only Japanese lace industry that I'm familiar with. Interesting. Yeah, I just um, never. That's like one thing we had never talked about. And when you brought that up, it was like, oh, I'm so curious because like you were saying, you're in Slovenia and all, and these other places that have lace that's so specific to them. Um, and in that, like you were saying, there's only so many things you can do with threads and people figure them out in all of your travels. Have you found any like superstitions that go along with the world of making lace out in your travels? Oh, I would so love to have documentation of that. I I am certain that such superstitions existed and you see them in things like weaving in the medieval period and even in, in ancient Europe where there's talk of like sort of talismanic tools like attached to your loom and weavings association with goddess worship and things like pre-Christian times. Um, because we primarily have records of Christian priests complaining about, you know, pagan women doing these things. But mm -hmm. that's sort of the, the uh, suppressed histories archive, the Women's History Study Center. I'm I'm not going to remember the name exactly, but we can maybe link to it um, yes. or something. But yeah, that, that talks any... about that. The 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 book on. Oh, gosh, pagans. Anyway, I sorry, I'm like going off track here. So I don't have the name of the, what I'm talking about off the top of my head, which I know is your nightmare. I'm sorry. I like no, it's thrown fine. some extras. In I love it. Just I'm because glad. those are like, you know, the little but things I'm like, oh, there's just, you know, lace making is so rhythmic. And um, it was made in these small groups of women together. I mean, it's just to me, even just as a maker, you really enter this sort of Zen state while, like you were saying about knitting, where you can kind of like leave your mind and leave your body a little bit. And so I just think there must be these things. But unfortunately, we not only do we not have records, barely any records of lace makers identities at all from before the 19th and 20th century, we certainly don't have records of what they thought. And many of them were illiterate, so they wouldn't have been able to write these things down, even if they were doing them. But I I would love to look for evidence of that. And, and you know, I did interview lace makers across Europe as part of my travels and as a kind of oral history. And I'm really interested in oral history and the ways that that can accurately reflect stories that have been passed down for generations that weren't written down. So now that this has come up um, on my travels, I will be certain to ask about any superstitions or ritual practices related to, to lace making because they they just must exist. They yeah, must. They have to. Now, when we did our like uh, New York Historical Society panel, we like talked a lot about this on our own. And I think a little bit in the panel about how like these things that and obviously that discussion is what inspired me to get this podcast going was there isn't very much out there. These things that like, you know, are thought of as like feminine hobbies, things like making lace, knitting, sewing, that kind of thing. If they were integrated with magic, women, depending on the time frame, women were not given the tools to write them down and have them be you know, traditions that you can now research back into a book because of, you know, the inaccessibility of reading and writing at some points. And then also, 
you know, the, the ramifications of practicing witchcraft, you're not going to write anything down. So we have to do in like our kind of realm of liking both of these things to find the cross sections here is to do a lot of inferring and kind of piecing together like, well, women were doing this and women also were like primarily doing this. Like there's got to be cross sections and figuring those out is the hardest part. But I'm really excited and I feel like you will in your travels find things when you like figure out what the wording is to like ask these ask these people like because I feel like superstitions and things and like rituals people are like ooh nothing like that no you know but like finding the right verbiage for it people will be like oh yeah my grandmother told me you never pick up a pin that you dropped when you were making lace because that was like x you know you have to figure out how to get it out of them without them thinking it's witchcraft but like it is (laughs) yeah yeah no and you know one of the things that has been shifting and i know this is true because we've talked about it a little bit in the world of witchcraft but definitely in the study of history and in textiles is alternate methodologies for like reverse engineering that type of information you know if you don't have a grandmother who who did that sort of thing that you can ask then you know how do we find these things out and written texts have been so heavily prioritized within culture and society and history as like the only um, important source for how to research history and how to research like what people did and what their lives were like. But the reality is, is that written texts are biased, just as biased as anyone, you know, writing them down because we're all, we all have our biases. So it isn't some like perfect resource, even when it's data driven, there's the, the, there's so much omitted that it is misleading to assume that any text is a complete document of, you know, historical record. So, you know, one of the things that I do is like practice led research. So like, for example, re- like recreating patterns and reproducing them from history. And there's so much that can be gleaned from that. That's something that's possible because we have existing pieces of lace. So, you know, I know that that would be a lot more dis- difficult to apply to witchcraft, but there. But there is this sort of embodiment that happens while you're doing that, that you are like connecting backwards with the person who made it before the same piece that you're reproducing. And I, I there's I think there's a lot of potential there for spiritual practice as well as historical yeah. knowledge. I think that like specifically thinking of like, you know, reverse engineering these things, it, you have to be able to like you will find yourself in that person's mindset to a degree because when you're, I've seen what lace patterns look like. And for, you know, people who are not familiar, it's just kind of lo- like lines and dots. Am I correct in, in describing it that way? Uh, yes. no, I'm talking about bobbin lace specifically. Right. It's like a web. People, yes. Yeah. It's, it looks like, like it, it definitely boggles people's minds a little bit. <laughs> so like to be piecing this puzzle together in reverse, you're going to end up in a similar mindset to that person. So I feel like that inherently is going to like connect you to them in a way that then if you throw like some like focus and a like ritual into that practice, you can make that easily into like a research session in the realm of you know, magic in my mind. That's how I would do it. You know, my, all of my family was 
women who like did crafts and arts uh but like none of them were witches to my knowledge but i'm like oh well how like what about like all these things that like superstition i missed out on a lot i think because you know being a trans person i was raised a little boy i missed out on a bunch of information that like you know maybe my grandmothers would have passed down orally if i was a little girl learning to make you know uh knit things or sew things um i think it, I could have gotten alternative information. And I think that there's so much that we don't know. And that's the exciting part of all of it. And I think because, you know, women have carried these things out for so long that magic is like integrated into them. Like, you know, right off the bat, is there anything in the realm of lace making that you find to just be inherently magical? And that can be in a metaphysical way or like, you know, just something you feel like it is magic? That's such a good question. I think honestly, just the process of starting with just simple threads and transforming them into an endless variety of the most elaborate and exquisite and skillful textiles and arguably the most expensive textiles ever made in history. And I think also what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, in many cases, you know, the the designer and the maker are different people, right? Like that's pretty typical within manufacturing, even by hand. But the designers were really more like illustrators and they didn't necessarily, unless they were themselves professional lace makers who had moved up the ranks to become a designer, they weren't necessarily technically knowledgeable on how to like translate a drawing into a piece of lace like and, and particularly I'm talking about bobbin lace here because it's it's kind of like a circuit board and you have to connect all of the threads in the specific way you have to travel all the bobbins so that they're in the right place so it's um it's really hard to improvise unless you're incredibly skilled but they are but they were giving these drawings to these women these lace makers who couldn't read or write often and you know none of these are universal there were certainly lace makers who could read and write also but um and they and they were so therefore seen as like less intelligent they were lower often lower class often poor and they were but they had the most incredible technical skills you know that to me is just like it is just dazzling and amazing that that this almost appears out of thin air in history and i think there's a lot of opportunity there even though we don't know about the sort of ritual aspect for those things to be sort of turned into magical practice for contemporary makers and practitioners. You've been able to trace your uh, kind of family line back to the Pennsylvania Dutch region. And I know that there's specific magic tradition that exists in that world. Is there any lace that is specifically from that area? Yeah. Um, so my my grandpa was Amish. My both sides of my family are Pennsylvania Dutch. I was born in Pennsylvania, and I and I went to you know uh, our family's not Amish anymore, obviously, but we're Mennonites. And my mom and I at least have been studying Pennsylvania Dutch language, and I've been trying to also get into the sort of like Brauchai related religious practices like um, Orglave, but dabbling only. So I. I'm very, very much interested in Pennsylvania Dutch heritage and culture and history. And it's been part of my whole upbringing, but I've gotten even more interested in studying it as an adult. 
And I've looked everywhere for any any evidence, any evidence that there was lace making. But I honestly think that um, because the Amish were so strict and rigid about like bodily ornament and decorating your homes and your clothing, that sort of ironically lace is sort of anathema. Um, it, it wouldn't be something that they would ever be allowed to wear. I mean, even there's very little documentation of the history of Mennonite and Amish clothing, but you know, even the sort of bonnet wearing, which now seems old fashioned, when that was introduced to those communities in the early 19th century was seen as the certain types of bonnets that now persist was seen as like too fashionable um, than the types of head coverings that they had been wearing before, which were more like scarves, you know, more like peasant headwear from Switzerland and Germany. So yeah, I, I, there's absolutely textile tradi traditions. There are many weavers in my family lineage, but what I really hope to someday find is a connection to lace in my Swiss ancestry specifically. My mom is our family genealogist and she can take our family tree back to like 1200 in Switzerland, which is a huge privilege. And um, I do have some family from the St. Gallen region. Um, Valentine Metzler is my ancestor who in the 18th century, and that's an embroidery region very famously, but in the West of Switzerland, is where lace making was happening. Starting as early as 1536, we actually have a date, thanks to this pattern book by an anonymous woman only known by her initials, RM. And she says that that's the year that lace making came to Switzerland from Venice. So that's exciting. We like never have dates for those things. So I have some family heritage from that Western region. So my hope is someday to go and do, you know, research in, the community archives there of the cities and see if I can find any relatives that worked in that. But it could be that they considered this too worldly, too vain, um, which, you know, my my religious choices might strike them that way they, they too. So I think it's fine. <laughs> I didn't, when I was writing that question, I didn't even think about how like the clothing is so strictly simple and that's like religiously uh, what they do so i don't know why that didn't occur to me that lace would probably be far too ornamental integrate into how they make their clothing and i know that a lot of people can see lace as something like really beautiful and decorative and almost play it down and in its importance because of it being considered decorative but do you think with the integration of like ritual and witchcraft, you can take a piece of lace and turn it into something with like greater power, which I feel like we kind of have already touched upon a little bit, but I did want to shift us in more of a like magical focus. Yeah, I, I do. I think that there is a lot there. I mean, when you're putting so much energy into something, when you're sitting with it for so long and you're working on it, um, especially if it's meant as a gift for someone or with someone in mind, I feel like it is giving them part of yourself. And even, you know, for my most recent commission project, which was a, a collar depicting the story of Judith and Holofernes in red silk for the exhibition Threads of Power at Bard Graduate Center Gallery, that piece, I mean, that has like parts of me in it. Like I cried into that lace. Like there's like 
I pricked my finger on a pin and bled into that lace, which you can't see, you know, like that, these things that we dedicate, they become part of us. And when I, I was channeling my rage into that piece, it was like an outlet for, for emotional relief when Roe versus Wade was overturned. And I kept thinking about all of the lace makers that came before me who, for some reason, that story of that very graphic and violent story of Judith and Holofernes was very popular. There's like nine pieces of lace depicting that story. And not in embroidery from the same time period. It's just, it's kind of specific to lace in this way. It's You see it a lot in paintings, but in textiles, it's like less frequent. And I, I, I had this, I, I was imagining that the women making this story were, were putting anger at their oppression into and their forced subordination. And many of them were in orphanages or convents where they were forced to work and make lace all day that they didn't necessarily profit from. And so I imagined them channeling their rage into these stories of female empowerment. This, And then when, while working on that, this horrible tragedy of um, bodily autonomy loss happened. And I felt that it was a source for me to chan- channel my rage. So although it wasn't like, a, you know, a focused spell or a magical practice per se, it really was a ritual of like healing for me. And I think that's one way that that lace making can be absolutely used as a sort of magical practice. Yeah, that is very compellingly magical in my eyes. Um, would you consider lace to be like talismanic art? That piece became a focal point for kind of getting outrage and some internal healing. Do you think that lace as a whole could be considered a talismanic art when produced by a witch? I think it would be a great medium for um, talismanic purposes because lace has the ability to be made into any shape or design. As, As long as you have the skill, you can interpret it into literally anything that you can imagine. And there's so many methods for doing that. There's braided lacing, braided lacing, which has uh, magical properties. There's knotted laces, there's stitched laces. So I feel like those could have different binding or um, I don't know, different ritual connotations depending on what you're doing. You can also incorporate threads, counted threads or color in different ways. So I think I there's so many ideas out there, but I definitely think that it could be used in that way. I don't know how much it has been, um, but there's certainly, there's an artist, April Dausha, who has used lace making lace as in exploring her Catholic identity, um, made laces and to represent communion wafers that she's then held on her tongue and connected in her body and in that sort of way. And so, you know, I think that it could really be incorporated in, an endless variety of ways. I I just, I, I couldn't uh, necessarily name them. Well, and that, that I think is going to be a major struggle that myself and any guests that I have here, like if you want something historically based, this isn't like 100% the podcast for you because there's going to be so much gap. And in the occult world, people refer to it as UPG, which is unproven personal gnosis you know, people will be like, this is just my UPG. Like, it's not, you know, based in history or fact, but kind of going back to what you were saying is like, written books are subjective, and they like, particularly have the author's point of view, almost exclusively. And 
all occult books are someone's UPG from some point in the world that they have now just become so established as like, you you know, you, you brought up uh, the use of color threads in making lace. Now, I think people uh, think of lace as being, you know, black for morning things, white otherwise. Uh, but I know that you have, there's a lot of lace that had existed in colors. Is that uh, common? Yes, it was historically common. You know, part of the reason that not that much of it survives is because um, the colored threads used in lace were often silk and dyed silk can be more likely to degrade over time they also use metal threads like gold wrapped silk or or silver and a lot of times gold threads would be melted down potentially to be reused because they were so valuable and white linen survives simply because it is very hardy um so we have ancient egyptian linen from five thousand years ago that looks like it was woven yesterday and you know uh so so it just it's survival bias really but I think, you know, I was just thinking also in terms of like connecting to lacemakers practices that we do know about one, one big part of lace folklore is lace tells. Um, lace tells were like often rhythmic chants or rhymes that were repeated with the rhythm of lace making by a group. So, and these were some of them are related to like murder ballads um, or nursery rhymes. Um, and some of them actually have literal counting in them. So you were counting the number of threads that you were doing while you were working. But this would be something to sort of make the time go quicker if you're a young lace maker. But I could see how that repetition and that rhythmic chanting could be used for like incantation purposes while making lace. Like that is part of the true history of lace making. And we have records of lace tells um, there's a great website, Lace in Context by the Poor for the Rich by David Hopkin that has excellent records of tells and also in the book um, Romance of the Lace Pillow by Thomas Wright. So if anyone's interested and some of them are very dark. Um, so they really run the gamut. Oh, that's so cool. Because yeah, that's like, I can't see a world where there was not like incantation put into that in the past. It's like, Maybe it was hidden into whatever it was, but think about all of the like folklore and fairy tales and things like that, that we were raised on, that our parents and our grandparents were raised on. When you really look into those, there is just straight like witchcraft and magic integrated into these stories. Um, so to think that there's these like chants, rhythmic chants that women were doing when making lace, especially in groups. To think that there wouldn't be some sort of magic hidden in them is, you know, to be living in a fool's paradise. I like there. If you want to live in a world where no witchcraft exists, sure, you can make yourself believe that um, that wouldn't have been a thing. But I, I myself, hearing that, can't can't really believe it. In that kind of same vein, in the I guess that would like the Christian world. Um, there's a million uh, patron saints to all different types of things, but I know that being a patron saint of lace and lace makers and lace making is fairly common. Who are some of the you know major players in that world, if you will? Because I know that many occultists do work with patron saints, even if they aren't under the like 
Christian or Catholic umbrella, they some people still might utilize the working with those spirits. Yes, that that so that also, you know, indicates that they were they were connecting not only like sort of rhythmic chanting of tells, but also identifying with different spirits and connecting with them and real or real or imagined real or people who either really did live or maybe perhaps didn't, I should say. For example, I think one of the most well-known um, patron saints of lace is St. Catherine. And St. Catherine actually has sort of like two origin stories that may have gotten confused. And that's kind of like why she ended up a, a, the patron saint of lace making. Um, and she's celebrated often in France and in England, November 25th is St. Catherine's Day, which is like still celebrated by some lace makers. We, we eat um, Catherine cakes, which is a specific um, wheel shaped cookie that's based on the, the Catherine wheel. Um, and the sort of Jack jump over the candlestick nursery rhyme um, ties to a ritual practice of lace makers on St. Catherine's Day um, in this, what's called candle moss, meaning it's like the day that lace makers are allowed to start using a candle. Before that, they, they um, have to work by daylight only, but November 25th starts to become winter hours. So you um, start using a candle until I think it's sometime in February when you are supposed to stop using it because they're so expensive and lace makers would share them together. So they would jump over a candlestick as part of this celebratory event. Again, yes, it's associated with a Catholic saint, but it's very, you know, ritualistic in that sense. So basically the first St. Catherine was St. Catherine of Alexandria, who was a fourth century Christian martyr who lived in Egypt between 287 and 305 AD. And essentially she refused to, she, she won a religious debate against a pagan scholar and was sentenced to death by an uh, emperor Maxentius. So she was supposed to be tortured to death on a wheel, but miraculously the wheel shattered and and the bits of wood that flew out killed some of the people watching. But then they decapitated her and milk came out of her head and all these other miracles happened. And then she became a patron saint of wheels and therefore wheel makers and spinners and by extension, lace makers. But that might be sort of this mix up with Catherine of Aragon, first wife of Henry VIII, I should specify. And she was very skilled in needlework and is often credited with sort of like bringing lace making to England. Again, when these big royal figures are sort of credited with major inventions, it's generally more of like apocryphal stories or mythological fun stories that we like to tell and probably not true, but she was a needleworker. And so there's sort of a mix up between the two Catherines that has made St. Catherine a patron saint, a, a real and possibly not real person, depending on your beliefs. But then there's there's in France, they have saint regis who was a jesuit priest um and essentially he really did live in 1597 to 1640 in eastern france in the auvergne region around le puy en valais where lace making bobbin lace had been made you know this is just over the border from switzerland so they'd also had lace making come from venice very early in the 16th century and the French court was spending so much money on foreign lace that the French government decided to pass sumptuary laws, basically banning lace imports. So the lace makers of Le Puy, which was kind of an, one of the only lace regions in France, but not enough to supply the whole court, 
they were they were destitute they were on the streets they had no income because they couldn't sell their lace anymore so saint regis went to toulouse to the government and said you have to reverse this and you know save the lace makers and they actually did they listened to him the french parliament so they overturned the law and now he's been canonized by the church and is still celebrated by lace makers in lapui um he's in the cathedral if you ever visit <laughs> that's very cool i i have to go back to um saint catherine and when she was decapitated her she bled honey or no milk she bled milk yes one of the miracles i know it, it's there's there's even more but i was trying to summarize this quickly but it's it's such an incredible story yeah i'm i'm not familiar with the like saints that are honored in the realm of like lace making like i know i've done some research into like what patron saints of like sewing and things like that there are and saint anne is one of like the overlapping ones and i haven't looked at this in months so i might be uh incorrect and feel free to jump in and correct me at any moment but isn't it that she was mary's which you know i i wouldn't deny that treatment if i were her so i get it um, absolutely yeah, but she I, is. She is Mary's mother and she and she is depicted often teaching Mary to sew and do needlework and things like that. So um, and she's another patron saint in Flanders in Belgium. They celebrate her as a patron saint of lace makers. Yeah, I think that it's a really interesting path to like that people who are lace makers and witches. I feel like that could be like a very interesting path to like follow as a lead into like pulling the occult and or like spirits and spirituality into your lace making, which is like very thrilling an idea to me because that's like something I'm so heavily in pursuit of is like, how do I make the thing that I love to do so much? How do I make it magical? Um, even though it is inherently magical in my mind, because like you had brought up before, any transformative act, which then you add, you know, ritual or whatever to, it's going to, it's going to be a magical act. Um, even without really the ritual aspect, the transform, the transformative process alone is magical because you're taking something that is seen as nothing, a piece of thread, a piece of yarn, whatever, and you're turning it into something that is going to keep your family like warm in the cold months or whatever, like you're doing something truly magical. Honestly, we've been talking for so long. I feel like this is probably a good place just so there's not yeah. too much uh, yeah. information. I feel like edit. this is where, sh yeah, we yeah. should kind of wrap up because I know that you have a trip to France upcoming where you're going to be doing a marathon of uh, like, textile history fun um so i assume that you're gonna find a bunch of uh new information because you weren't looking for it before so i feel like we'll just have to have i'll have to have you back another time to continue this uh conversation on like the intersection specifically of lace and witchcraft where can people find you so i am on all the social medias, I pretty much. I am Irina Naomi on Instagram and TikTok primarily, which is E-R-E-N-A-O-M-I. Um, and I'm also Brooklyn Lace Guild on Instagram. 
which has been fun to share the work of the members of my guild here in New York City. Um, my website is sort of like not a thing at the moment, but those, so those are the best places to find me. I do sort of teach and lecture online. So I have some things coming up that I will share soon. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And do you have anything that you need to plug now that is like firmly upcoming or should people just keep an eye on your social media? Because one, you're also very beautiful and glamorous. So the, it's always worth uh, watching Thank because you. I get a vast amount of like fashion inspiration and have for the like, I don't know, how long have I known you? Like 13 years, something in that realm. Oh my realm. God, yeah, a like, long time. All this time I've been like, Elena just is the epitome of like style. Thank you. Well, 13 years is in wedding anniversary traditions that's the lace year so it's our it's our lace year for our friendship oh i love that i hope it is 13 years i kind of just threw a number out there well okay i'm just i decided it is anyway it is yeah no officially (laughs) because i i like moved in 2012 right or 2011 what year did you get married 2015 yeah math not my strong suit well and i'm just kind of like "Mm, i feel like i'm gonna figure out i'm gonna figure out what our uh we'll figure it out what anniversary on but i think going with our lace anniversary really makes sense this year we should just celebrate that every year honestly i agree every wedding anniversary should be the lace anniversary it really should but i do have one thing that i can plug which is that on june 10th at 2 p.m i'm giving a lecture at the Dallas Museum of Art, um, in conjunction with their exhibition, Saint Sinners, Lovers and Fools, which is uh, about 300 years of Flemish art. And my talk will be titled Industrious Daughters and Miserable Maidens, Lacemaking in Early Modern Flanders. And I will be talking about some of the few existing records that we do have of lacemakers identity from 16th century Flanders. So please come learn about these very special women. If you're in Dallas. Yeah, that's such a good name as a miserable maiden myself. I really, I wish I could be there for that one. Also, you're always doing some sort of event that I'm like, oh, I wish I was there. I have um, online things coming up too. So just those I just haven't shared yet, but they're great. but they're coming up. I think we will another an one eye. is San Francisco School of Needlework and Design. I'm doing a virtual talk August 19. So mark your calendars. And oh. that is, yes, that is virtual. That's yeah. that's exciting because yeah, I know I love hearing you like talk about literally like ev- like all of this research you've truly devoted your life to. Every time we're together talking about things, I'm just like, oh, it's so cool to be so invested in something that you can literally just like be like oh yes this like I threw an extra question at you that we didn't even talk about at all beforehand so you didn't have any research done and you still like gave such an answer because you're just so knowledgeable it's so thrilling and anybody who gets to like see you especially in person because you are you have such a like fun energy in person um people are very lucky to get uh that shared with them But I just want to thank you for being here. I'm so excited that you could be my first guest. And obviously, you will have to come back because there's so much more that we can discuss on this topic, I think. Absolutely. Thank you, my darling, for your many kind words. And it's always so good to see you. And now when I interview lacemakers or talk to them, I'm going to have to ask them questions about superstitions and rituals 
that's related to lace making and document that. Um, I'm very into oral history, so that would be a neat project. So I'll have to come back and maybe we can work on some lace making rituals together um, and share them in the future. Yeah, I think that's great. I have based off of today, I have like a, you know, idea for one in general that I feel like you and I will have to work on making a full scale like ritual. Um, and I'm really excited to do that with you. Um, and with that, I'm going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Make sure to rate this podcast on whatever streaming service you are enjoying it on and make sure to find Elena on all of the social media and myself. If you are not familiar with me, uh, I'm severely maimed and thank you so much. <laughs>